Well, the Magi presented to the Christ child gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know what gold is. The question this morning is, what is frankincense and myrrh? And especially, what is frankincense? Now, both frankincense and myrrh start as a resinous, resinous sap inside a special family of trees that grow almost exclusively in the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. And so they only grow in this one part of the world. They have some in India and other places, but uh, that's where the countries of Yemen and Oman are today. Now, everybody knows where Yemen's at, right? <laughs> Just at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, there is Yemen. It was in the news a few years ago because the U.S. destroyer coal was bombed right there at Yemen, where the United States had a, had, has a naval base, at least it did at the time. But now Yemen is where there's a proxy war going on between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They, they don't want to fight it on their own territory, so it becomes very easy. Let, let's, let's blow up Yemen and completely destroy it. And, uh, and Oman is right there, there next to it. Located on the Arabian Sea, uh, bordering Saudi Arabia, which is to the north, and in biblical times, this region was considered, and it's called this in the Bible, the ends of the earth. This was the ends of the earth. And it's where the Queen of Sheba came from and uh, when she went to visit Solomon. Now, I knew a doctor who did missionary work in this part of the world, and he would remind me that he was taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And literally and biblically, he was. Now, certain times a year, they would take these special trees and they would cut a little nick, take the bark off, and the sap would ooze out. In a day or so, the sap would form little nodules, which are dried by the sun, and the nodules are removed from the tree when they're still kind of soft, and they harden into a nugget form that can be burned as an aromatic incense. And they're used for another, uh, several other uses, too, that we'll look at later. And the nuggets of frankincense are kind of a yellowish golden color, and they're smooth on the outside, and they're just little yellowish, clear, you know, the transparent golden nuggets. Well, the nuggets of myrrh, they look more jagged, and they're reddish brown. They look like reddish brown pebbles or rocks. And while frankincense has a sweet citrusy scent, myrrh has a piney bitter odor. Now, frankincense was an extremely valuable commodity that's been used in the Middle East and exported around the world for over 5,000 years. It, to release its scent, the frankincense is either burned or smoldered over hot coals, and the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Israelites, and numerous other cultures use frankincense as part of their religious ceremonies. Now, the smoke of the burning frankincense, it was used in that day, still used today, for driving away mosquitoes and other pests. And so it reduces the incidences of diseases like malaria. And frankincense is still used today and was used at that time as a clothing scent. They had a special wicker frame that was used and they would place their clothes over that frame and then the clothes would get the rising smoke and the, the aroma that would come up. Uh, frankincense was used in that day, still used today as a deodorant as a toothpaste, and as a flavoring for food and drink. And one of frankincense's primary uses is medicinal. The graduals of the frankincense, or the frankincense smoke, or the frankincense ground up and dissolved in water, 
are all used as various forms to treat a variety of ailments. Uh, these include nausea, indigestion, chest coughs, hypertension, and post-childbirth recovery, which is kind of an interesting thing when we think of a, a new mother by the name of, of Mary. And because of its many desired uses, and since it only came from one part of the world, frankincense was an extremely valuable commodity. From southern Arabia, large caravans of camels crossed the Arabian desert up to the northwest to reach the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and from there, frankincense was shipped all over the known world. And from southern Arabia, large caravans also transported the frankincense to the north to Persia and Babylon, where the Magi lived. Now, historically, it can be shown that camels were first domesticated for use in the frankincense trade. Up in that time, camels were just wild animals, just like everything else. And they, they domesticated the camels for the frankincense trade. And some caravans had 150 to 200 camels, all carrying frankincense. And today, the hundreds of miles of the, the incense trade route, it's called, is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. You wouldn't want to go there today because Saudi Arabia and Iran are taking it out on each other. And uh, usually in those kind of things, these, these sites become destroyed uh, when there's a war going on. But to put it in perspective for today, the incense trade was just as important to Arabia in the ancient world as the oil trade is today. Both frankincense and myrrh were so expensive in Europe in the Roman Empire the southern that southern Arabia became known as Arabia Felix, which means Arabia the blessed, the blessed. Now, all the gifts that the Magi presented to the Christ child have both a practical and a symbolic aspect. So I want to look at the practical aspect first. The practical aspect has to do with the Holy Family's journey to Egypt, where they would remain for two, a little over two years. And we see that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, the 13th chapter of Matthew, or 13th verse of Matthew chapter 2, says, When they had gone, when the Magi had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Herod said, well, tell me where, where you find him so I too may come and worship him. But Herod's intent all along was, was to kill the Christ child, find out exactly which baby he was. Now, as you probably know, the Magi probably arrived somewhere more, well, a little bit less than a time over two years before they got there. You know, with our nativity scenes, uh, we put the Magi, you know, typically a little bit farther out because they came to a house to see where the baby was and they ascertained from the Magi when the star appeared and so Herod ascertained that the child was probably two years old, old, uh, older or older less. And uh, there's been times when we've put the nativity scene in the church and we put the Magi clear over on top of the piano <laughs> just to kind of indicate some of that. But, you know, Herod wanted to kill the child. And the Greek word translated flee, D Joseph was told to flee, is fugo. We get the word fugitive from it. Become a fugitive. Run. The verb is a present imperative. 
It means to start fleeing now and don't stop. Don't stop until you are safely in Egypt. Now, the distance from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt was about 75 miles, and it would take another 100 miles to get to the place of safety in Egypt. It was a long trip with a mother and baby, and the Sinai Peninsula has some of the highest altitude mountains in that whole area. We don't think of area around the Mediterranean, that area as being cold and those kind of things, but it was very mountainous, high mountains, and in the winter, the temperature would get down to about three degrees above zero. So think mother, baby, Joseph, donkey, and all of that, travel, making that trip by just getting up in the middle of the night and you got to get out of here. Run. Now in God's providences, this is one of the cool things about Egypt. One of the cool things about Egypt was the city of Alexandria. Alexandria, Egypt, right on the coast in Egypt of the Mediterranean Sea, a great city. Alexandria had built the city, or Alexander the Great had built the city of Alexandria, and he named it after himself. Now, to show you something about Alexander the Great, he named something like 21 cities after himself all over the world. But Alexandria in Egypt was the, 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 the best of the bunch. And it was a place of education, it was a place of economics, everything that you could think of a, of a great city. But the thing that is important for us to understand is he designated it as a sanctuary city. Alexandria was a sanctuary city. And even in Roman times, the city was considered a special place of safety and opportunity for the Jews. And the historian Philo said by A.D. 40, he reported that at least one million Jews lived in Alexandria because they had escaped from all the other stuff going on in, in Israel and, and those kind of things. And they could even live in safety in Alexandria and practice their, their religion uh, right there. And in fact, the, the Greek version of the Hebrew, script, Hebrew Scriptures, remember, is called the Septuagint. It means the 70. In about A.D. or at least 200 B.C., 200 Hebrew scholars got together and they translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek. And that's called the Septuagint. And much of the, the scripture passages in the New Testament are a direct quote from the Hebrew scriptures that were translated into Greek in Alexandria. But like we saw with Herod's wrath where he protected the Holy Family in Bethlehem, God was once again protecting his son. And he chose to protect him by very ordinary means. The command to go to Egypt, as far as we know, was, was, given, super, was given supernaturally by the, by the angel. But the trip itself and the stay in Egypt was, as far as we can tell, not marked by any special divine intervention. Just as thousands of other Jewish families had done for decades, Joseph picked up his family and, in this case, left by night not telling anybody his plans. Now, you might be able to see where I'm going with this. How do you take such a long, difficult journey over the mountains and stay there for two years? We assume Joseph could get a job once he got there. But how do you begin this journey and take this journey when you're poor as dirt? Literally, you're a poor family. At least this family was poor until just hours before they left. Just hours before they left, now they had what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And most likely the gold would have been in the form of gold coins. Gold was either made into jewelry or it was made into coins. And the reason that it was made into coins it was because it was a universal currency. You could spend it anywhere. It could be used as money anywhere, Egypt, anywhere, anywhere along the way. And we've already seen the practical benefits of frankincense, which could be used as anything from deodorant to medicine to insect repellent. All those things are helpful on a, on a long trip. And in ancient times, myrrh was used as a medicine as well. They didn't know at the time, but myrrh actually kills certain bacteria. It's a natural antibiotic. They only knew that it made them well. But that's what they used it for. Myrrh healed sores. It combated inflammation and pain. It killed some parasites. It was used in veterinary medicine for wounds and sores. God was even taking care of their donkey. And I said it wasn't supernatural as the dream and the command of the angel, but it certainly was providential. God was taking care of this family. And he was taking care of them by providing them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So now we come to the symbolic aspect of the gift of frankincense. Just like gold was a gift fit for a king, frankincense is a gift fit for God. Frankincense is mentioned specifically by name as frankincense, even though we know it's included when God talks about other incense. But it's mentioned 15, in the, 15 times in the Bible specifically. And it's mentioned three times in the Song of Solomon, but in a romantic context. So we won't go with that one this morning. And in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned in the fall of Babylon the Great, where no one will be able to trade with Babylon any longer, and the merchants lament in the last days that they can't buy Babylon's frankincense. But the primary references to frankincense in the Bible have to do with worship, with worship of God in the temple and in the tabernacle before then. Frankincense, along with other incenses and their sweet perfume, symbolizes prayer accepted before God. It symbolizes prayer accepted before God. Uh, for example, you don't need to turn to this one. Boy, I'm going to have you flip in, in a little while through a lot of scripture passages. But in, in the 141st Psalm, David wrote, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call upon you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as an evening offering. And so the burning of the frankincense and the evening offering is a symbolic of the aroma that is lifted up to God, is pleasing to God. As, we, as the smoke rises to God, our prayers go up to God. In the typical time of the burning of the incense and this kind of symbolism was the evening offering. And we have an example of that in the Christmas story in Luke chapter 1. So turn to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 1, at the fifth verse. The fifth verse of Luke chapter 1. This is Luke telling the Christmas story, the account of the birth of Christ. And Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist, who's going to prepare the way. The one coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. And like Matthew, it begins with Herod the king. Uh, verse 5 of Luke chapter 1 says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias 
of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, the priest, uh, they, they went on a rotation basis. They usually lived in and around Jerusalem when it was time for them to go and per- perform their priestly duties in their order. They, they had a schedule. And so they went, and Zacharias, it was his time. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Here it is, the evening offering, the hour of the incense offering. It's the same time of day that David was talking about when he said, my, my, May my prayer be counted, an, in, an incense before you. Apparently, David wasn't at the place where he could burn incense. But the prayer that he was offering up, he wanted to be just like the incense offering. He wanted to be just like the lifting up of the hands at the evening offering. Now with Zacharias here outside the temple at the hour of the incense offering, the whole multitude of of people were in prayer outside. And inside the temple, Zacharias burned the incense and prayed. And that's where we see in verse 11. As he was burning the incense, as he was praying, as he was lifting up his hands, as the smoke was rising, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. Now look at what the angel says to Zacharias, verse 13. But the angel, Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your petition, as the smoke of the incense lifted up to the Lord, God has heard your prayers, he has answered your prayer, and we know what Zacharias' prayer was. What was Zacharias praying as the incense was lifting up? And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son, and you will give him the name John. He was praying that his wife, Elizabeth, even in their old age, would bear a son. And then verse 14 says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So incense is symbolic of our prayers going up to God, and God being pleased with the aroma, and pleased with our prayers, and responding to our prayer, and answering our prayers. And also in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the priests were commanded to add frankincense to certain offerings. And we see one example of this back in uh, the second chapter of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 2 at the first verse. Leviticus, the second book in the Old Testament. And in Leviticus chapter 2, this is talking about the grain offerings. The grain offerings that were to be burned as a sacrifice. So they not only burned some of the animals as a burnt sacrifice, they also burned uh, the grain offering in this instance. And so Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1 says, Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest, 
and shall take from it its handful of its fine flour and of its oil and all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. In the Old Testament, 41 times the smoke that comes from these kind of offerings is said to be a soothing aroma to the Lord. A soothing aroma to the Lord. And so not only is frankincense symbolic of God hearing our prayers and answering our prayers, it's symbolic of acceptable worship, of acceptable worship for God, before God, God, worship that God accepts and is pleasing to him. And we see it this way used in the New Testament over in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. The fourth chapter of Philippians, the 18th verse, excuse me. And in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is thanking God for the gift that the Philippians sent to him to support his missionary work. And Paul considered that gift to him to be, in fact, true worship of God that is pleasing and acceptable to him. So in a practical sense today, when we put our money in the offering plate to support the Lord's work, when we give to missionaries or give to others to support their ministry, it's an act of worship. It's an act of worship that's pleasing to God. When the Magi presented their gifts to the Christ child, it was an act of worship that was acceptable and pleasing to God. And this is how Paul says God sees it. Uh, Verse 18 of Philippians chapter 4. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent. Epaphroditus took the, took the gift from the, from the Philippian church, presented it to Paul, and then he says, a fragrance aroma, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And then we have to add that, that second part. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever Amen. God sees it as a, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to him, but also one that brings him, brings him glory. And isn't that what worship is all about, bringing him glory? But I want to point out one more use of frankincense in, in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, verse 34, the 30th chapter of Exodus. And this is where the Lord is giving the recipe, the recipe for the incense that is to be used in the temple or the tabernacle. The incense is to be used at the altar of incense. And so verse 34 of Exodus chapter 30 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices. Then he mentions stacti, onica, galbanum, and we really don't know what those are today. Uh, the word stacti means literally to ooze out. So we assume that that's some kind of sap, or, and the others are probably some kind of, of, of gum, some kind of a gummy substance, but we're not sure what they are. And then spices, and then he says, with pure frankincense there shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting 
where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Now the word holy means here that it's untouched by any other element. Don't add anything to it that's not here and make sure it's not contaminated by anything else. Don't add anything. Don't contaminate it. And then the Lord gives a warning. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. Not make it for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. You can't make it for any of your own use. You can't have any personal perfume that has that same proportions in it. And verse 38 says, why you can't make it for yourself is, whoever shall make any of it to use a perfume shall be cut off from the people. That's basically a death sentence, to be outcast in the wilderness. So did you know that there's a perfume recipe in the Bible? We start with that one. And you know there was probably the most lovely fragrance imaginable? And that God said it'd cost your life if you ever made any of this for yourself? You say, well, what's the idea with that? What's the point of that? The point is this. Here was a fragrance designed to be only for God. To be only for God. And when the incense rose to God's nostrils, it was unique to Him. It was only for Him. It was unique to Him. There was no other perfume or aroma like it. And you wonder, what is that picture here? It pictures worship. It pictures our worship. It pictures that unique gift of when we worship him, that fragrance that rises out of the human heart to the living and glorious God. And it's a something that we don't offer to any other person or we don't contaminate it. It doesn't go to anybody else or to ourselves. It's only to God who made us and whom we worship. It's to be used for no other purpose. And so worship is a unique, separated, sanctified, holy act that rises out of the heart of the person to the very nostrils of God. So it's symbolic of worship. So God is saying, when you come to meet me here at Grace Baptist Church to worship, let there rise from you something that is holy and only mine, says God. Worship is that which is distinctly and only for God. And while it captures the most profound of our emotions, and we talked about this with the gift of music, and and we have music to express our worship and expresses our feelings and what we feel and what we want, and even though in in worship we, we ask God of things, but this is the divine truth that it's all directed and it's all it's all for God. We are to worship God as a sweet-smelling offering. And that was to be the expression and symbol of the worshiping place in the tabernacle and what is true in us as well. Now, in the New Testament, I'd like you to look at John chapter 12, verse 1, the 12th chapter of John. I told you I'd have you turning this morning. John chapter 12, verse 1. And I want to show you a similar thought, but it's in the New Testament. As the incense fragrance rose to the nostrils of God, it signified worship. And in John chapter 12, we have another fragrant gift offered in worship. And this time, it's offered to the Lord Jesus Christ in human form. Verse 1 of John chapter 12, and this was just right before 
you know, Christ was going to enter into Jerusalem and um, there'd be the shouting of hosannas on, and the waving of palms. But this is, this is the day before. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving, and that's typical, Martha's always serving. <laughs> but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. How costly? Probably a year's wages. Just that amount was a year's wages. And she took it and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, The glory of a woman is her hair. The glory of a woman is her hair. And she uses her glory for the lowliest task imaginable. Anybody in that part of the world who washed people's feet, and we understood this from Jesus washing the feet of, of the disciples Later that week, anybody who washed feet was thought of as the most menial slave. It was the bottom of the bottom of all the things that you did as a slave. And she used her glory to wash the dusty, dirty feet of Jesus. And doesn't use just water, but pours out the costliest fragrance. And in this, we see the true essence of worship. The true essence of worship. Worship is self-humiliating. And worship is profuse in its giving. It's self-humiliating. In, in that day, once a, a girl reached the age where she was marrying age, she could wear her hair down. But once she was an adult, her hair was always up. And it was always covered. To take down her hair in the presence of just anybody most people thought, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever seen. But she is taking, how could she do that? But she is taking the glory that God gave to her and returning it to Jesus in worship. And then you remember that Mary and Martha were different. Martha was always serving. Mary was always sitting at Jesus' feet. But here, Martha is serving because now she's been changed in her serving. She learned from before when she was serving what the better part is, but uh, Mary had chosen the better part. And then here in this context, uh, Judah said, now wait a minute, that's 300 denarii worth of ointment. We could have given that to the poor. He doesn't really care about the poor. He held the bag and wanted as much as he could get out of it. But Jesus said, let her alone. Let her alone. And here we see it's better to worship than to give welfare. What you give to God is infinitely more important than when you get, give to any other person, no matter what, what their needs. And that's not to say it's not important to give to men. And this time of year, we give to men, and we give to, to any cause that you know, comes up at Christmas. And, and there's, there, there's lots of them. You know, Christmas is a big time of, of fundraising. And it's not to say that when the Lord touches our hearts, we should give, not give to one of those, but it's to say that it's more important so to give to God. To give to God. And the thing that I think about Mary and her worship of the Savior, she didn't give a rip about what anybody else thought. She was just caught up in the awe of the Savior and serving 
in worshiping Him. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. And the true worship of the Magi. We know that the Magi believe the child born of Mary was God come in the flesh. He was God, and we know that for two reasons, and we see it in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We know that the Magi believed the child to be divine, to be God come in human flesh, because first of all, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. And also because they gave him the gift of frankincense, an offering that is fit for God. An offering that signifies prayer. An offering that signifies his praise and is pleasing. It is worshipful. It is pleasing to God. We sang that, I believe it was in the third verse of We Three Kings this morning. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Now that's kind of old English, the way that's worded. A deity nigh is a deity that's close to us. They're in the presence of God, presence of deity, and he owns our incense. We have given it to him. And then it says, prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him, God on high. The worship of the king, the worship of the Lord Jesus. Did you know it's a major theme in Matthew's gospel? After Jesus calmed the sea, the disciples were in the boat, and they realized God was in the boat with them. They worshipped him and saying, said, you certainly are God's son. And after the resurrection of Jesus, when he appeared to his disciples, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. In fact, the, the word translated worship and the, the Magi worshiping and worshiping here literally means to kiss out. You go, well, that's kind of weird. It means to put yourself down at the feet of a sovereign and worship him and kiss at him to worship, to worship him. Right before Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, Matthew 28, 17 records, and when the disciples saw him, they, they worshiped him. And in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan is tempting Jesus out of desperation, Satan tempts Jesus, says, all these things, Jesus, I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus responded to the temptation like he responded to every temptation. He quoted scripture. And Jesus quoted chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, verse 13. Jesus said to Satan, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Only. Time after time, Matthew's gospel records that Jesus is worshipped. The Lord Jesus receives and accepts the worship. Why? Because he is the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, God of God, whom we serve, who has come in human flesh. The Jesus, Lord Jesus is worthy of our worship because he is the Lord, he is our God, and he is the King of the forever kingdom. The King Jesus is worthy of our worship. I want you to turn over as we begin to close or wind down here a little bit. That, uh, over to Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. We read this this morning as our call to worship. In the scene in Revelation chapter 5, the scene is in heaven. And they're going to say, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power. Jesus is the lamb of God who was died on the cross, who was slain for the forgiveness 
and to pay the penalty of our, our sins. And so this is a glorious worship setting in, in heaven where there's myriads of angels, there's the living creatures, the elders, and thousands upon thousands, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things around them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and Worship. So we have that beautiful worship scene in heaven. But there's also a time where the Lord Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. And he will reign on the earth. He will reign on the earth in Zion for a thousand years as King of Kings and Lord of Lords on the earth. And there will be those who come to Zion at that time bearing gifts and praises of the Lord. So this time turn back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60, verse, verse 6. And these verses sound very much like what we talked about last week when the Queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon. And very much what we've seen this morning when the Magi visited the Christ child. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 60. This is after the return, the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's reigning on the earth. And the Lord says of Israel, verse 6, A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephath. All those from Sheba will come, and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. So there's coming a time where it's going to be very much like it was as we read with the Magi. And so we see something here of the Magi that's also symbolic about when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And what is going on now because their gifts may also be seen through the lens of global missions. Of the kingdom being proclaimed, the gospel being proclaimed throughout the world. Because Israel was never intended to be the stopping point of grace. Even though they began to think that they were the chosen people, we've got it all together, they were only chosen so that they might be a light to the other nations. And we are chosen as God's people, too, that we might be a light to the nations. God called them to be a light to the nations. And one of the clearest examples of this picture is found in just a few verses before this, in, in verse 3 of the 60th chapter of Isaiah. It's a scene, a scene describing that age to come when the nations will be drawn to the glory of Israel. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And those nations would come and they're not going to be coming empty-handed. They will bring gold and frankincense and bring good news to the praises of the Lord. And so at that time, so long ago, 2,000 years ago, we see that the, the Magi, the Gentile Magi, were really a microcosm of the greater reality that is to come, still to come. When one day, people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will come before the throne of Jesus Christ in praise 
and adoration. So I want to close by reading the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Philippians chapter 2. And now we're looking ahead with this. But it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, even though he was God the Son, living with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity. He did not hold on to his godness in that sense, didn't think it be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his God attributes for a time. He was still God, but he took the form of a bondservant in being made in the likeness of men, a baby in a manger. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Shall we pray? Father, we look to that day when Jesus will come again in all his glory and he's going to establish his kingdom on the earth and will reign on the earth for a thousand years before we get to that point in history where there's a new heaven and a new earth. Father, I pray that uh, in our worship this season and in our witness, Lord, we will not only point to Jesus as the one who came and was born in human, as human flesh and lived among us, but we'll proclaim him as the King of kings and Lord of lords who died on the cross for our sins, Lord, and as the one who is coming again in glory. And we thank you for Jesus, and we do pray it in his name. Amen.